Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, a wrestling history podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and welcome to episode 108. My guest this week will be the accomplished wrestling historian and author, Steve Johnson. We will get to that excellent conversation in just a moment. Just want to go over a few quick things. First and foremost, I would like to extend condolences to the fans, the friends, and the family of Chris Markov, who unfortunately passed away on February 10th at the age of 85. Of course, longtime fans of the territorial era of pro wrestling will remember Markov as an accomplished wrestler who traveled throughout the territorial system in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, he started out, actually, in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation in the early 60s, but he went just about everywhere, and he kind of specialized in tag team action. He was known, for example, for his tag team in the early 80s in Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling with Nikolai Volkov under the management of Lord Alfred Hayes, among several other successful tag teams. Chris Markoff, has left us at the age of 85, and again, we wish the very, very best and offer our condolences to his many fans, to his friends, and to his family. I also want to make mention of the fact that the April issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated is now on sale in print form. It was already on sale in digital form, but it's on sale in print form, and it's an important one. Why? Because it features the Year End Achievement Awards. Everybody likes to check out the PWI Achievement Awards, and they are in the brand new April issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Features Judgment Day on the cover. It's on sale now. Wherever you get your magazines, you can get it online also at pwi-online.com. And finally, I want to make mention, as I have been mentioning here the past couple of weeks, I want to make mention of Blood, Sweat, and Tears Wrestling's Lethal Leap Year. For those of you in the Connecticut area, it is coming to the Devonshire Hall in Hamden, Connecticut on Friday, March 1st. Again, put on by Blood, Sweat, and Tears Wrestling, a Bridgeport, Connecticut-based independent wrestling promotion. And I will be there. I will be there live and in person as the guest commentator. I will also be on hand selling signed copies of Blood and Fire. So if you're in the area and you want to check out some independent wrestling, you want to say hello to me, maybe you want to buy a book, come on down to Lethal Leap Year. You can find out more about it by checking out Blood, Sweat, and Tears on Twitter. That's BST underscore wrestling. And also on Facebook, just look up Blood, Sweat, and Tears Wrestling. You'll find their Facebook page. All right, now let's get to this week's conversation. Another great conversation with another great author and journalist. 
Steve Johnson for many years, as, as a lot of you must know, has been a contributor to Slam Wrestling. He's been a collaborator with Greg Oliver, as I'll mention here in the introduction to come, but also has been covering wrestling for a very long time as a journalist, as a serious journalist. He is one of the most respected and one of the most legit journalists working in and around the pro wrestling industry and has been for a very long time. I enjoyed this conversation very much, and I think you will too, and I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so it's my pleasure this week on Shut Up and Wrestle, I, I believe, to welcome, I'm going to have to go back and check everybody's credentials, but I believe this is the first time I have ever had a PhD on my show. Uh, this is somebody who, if you are into wrestling books in particular, wrestling journalism, this is somebody whose name you already know. Um, he has been a longtime contributor, over 20-year contributor to Slam Wrestling. He's worked extensively with Greg Oliver, who's been a guest on this show. He's a journalist. He's an author. Some of the books he's written that you may know of, it, it co-written with Greg in this case, are the, the history, the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame series of books, which includes heroes and icons, storytellers, tag teams, and heels. And I, I can go on the record in saying that a couple of those books were on the bookshelf when I worked at WWE in the reference library, and we used them extensively. He's also won the Jim Melby Award from both the National Wrestling Hall of Fame and the CAC. So that's kind of a, a very special honor in my book. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome Steve Johnson to the show. Steve, thank you so much for being a guest. Well, thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. Enjoy the show, and I'm glad to be a part of it. I would just add the caveat that PhD ended up having absolutely zero to do with any of the wrestling history, except I had to pay that back over a number of years uh, in an effort that was even less profitable than writing books about wrestling. <laughs> Wait a minute. So you're telling me that your PhD is not in wrestling history? That's shocking. No, it's in political science, and I tell people that today... A degree in political science is about as valuable as a degree in alchemy. Oh, God. Well, it's sort of, some people treat political science that way, I think, unfortunately. I think, though, we're living in a time where I, I, I feel like you we could all use a little bit more understanding of that, to be honest with you. Well, I, I, I spoke to a lot of groups at CAC, Cauliflower Alley Club, and others. And so I always use the same anecdote that I'll, I'll introduce here. During my career... I think I'm probably the only person in America who has interviewed Bill Clinton, Jerry Falwell, General Alexander Haig, and Abdullah the Butcher. <laughs> now I get, you... asked, I get asked occasionally, Steve, how could you write about research and cover politics and then turn around and write and research and cover wrestling? And the answer, Brian, is simple. One's a work. Are you, you're waiting for me to ask you which one, right? <laughs> we, we'll leave that in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> now, well, let me ask you this about that. Um, we all know that um, that there's always this stigma about wrestling. It seems like there's always going to be and writing about it and that kind of thing. Have you ever found uh, that it's something that comes back to haunt you? Like, let's say you're doing something like, quote unquote, legitimate interviews and things with people and that nature. Have you ever been had that kind of put in your face? Well, oh, you, you've written this wrestling crap. What is that all about? 
Yeah, I've had that a few times, but I'll tell you what's actually worked better is people, when you introduce wrestling into the conversation, it kind of perks their ears up. Well, maybe this guy's got a different angle on something else. Or even better, maybe the guy was a closet wrestling fan and was afraid to admit it. But here comes a reporter who's relatively well-dressed and seems to comb his hair. And he's into this too. And so that occasionally has formed a better bond with an interview subject than you might otherwise get with just straight one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, that's interesting. I found that too sometimes. Sometimes it actually winds up putting people at ease. And like you said, you find out that people are fans that maybe they they were afraid to, they would never bring it up in a conversation, but now that they feel comfortable with you, they can talk about it. I had, <laughs> I had an experience. I won't just talk about myself here, but I had a job interview once where, and this was not an interview, a, a journalistic interview. It was a job interview where I had one of the VPs of the company basically get me in a room. So, cause what he saw on my resume, WWE, and he just started grilling me about wrestling questions, about what it was like. Like he wanted me to tell him about Vince Russo and about, you know, what Vince McMahon's <laughs> office looked like and all these kind of inside things. And I'm sitting there going, is he going to ask me any questions about the job or anything? It seemed like he just wanted that audience to, to, cause he was a closet wrestling fan. I'll give you a similar example on my end, Brian. I interviewed and was working with, I won't name it, but a former high-ranking Democratic Party official in Virginia who was a former Virginia cabinet secretary. And he found out what I was doing about wrestling. And his first reaction was not some political or public policy pronouncement. It was, oh, are you going to write about Cowboy Bob Ellis? I loved Cowboy Bob Ellis. He was always bleeding. He was so cool. Uh, there's, a, there's a bond you can't shake. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like how, you know, we all know the stories about Jimmy Carter and Mr. Wrestling 2. And, you know, I believe wasn't he the one that also had he appointed Jim Barnett as a liaison to the arts or something? I think it was Jimmy yes. Carter and the Bush family and their closeness with people like Ernie Ladd. And 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 I, I believe that George H.W. Bush's mother was also uh, much like jimmy carter's mother a, a fanatical wrestling fan so there's a lot of uh weird connections like that in so-called uh mainstream legitimate uh society that you wouldn't expect well i'll go back even further than that brian um as you know i've completed a manuscript on the life and times of jim londis the great wrestling champion of the 20s and the 30s that is under review at a publisher right now. And as you know, from your experience, under review is like meow. It can mean just yeah. about anything. Hope to see that book out this year. But Londis was the first wrestler to meet with the president of the United States. He met with Herbert Hoover. And then he carried a message from the president of Greece to FDR. And then in a meeting with FDR's son, Franklin D. Roosevelt Jr., later secretary of the Navy, he advised him not to go into football because wrestling was much safer if you knew how to do it right. So there was, even back then, uh, the most well-known wrestler of his era doing a little wink, wink. Right, right. To really high-ranking officials. That's amazing. And a book like that, too, I, I really hope that that gets out there. Because it's interesting to me. It's like uh, there are so many stories in wrestling <laughs> people who today are, unfortunately, have become somewhat more obscure 
um, who are because it's wrestling and the history is not as well preserved, who nevertheless have these fascinating stories and are iconic figures. And if publishers just were willing to take a chance, it could find an audience. We see so many memoirs and biographies and things come out about people who are not uh, enormous mainstream personalities, but the story of their life is what sells the book. And I just wish that people would take more of a chance with wrestling books. Um, you know, I've wanted to do a book about Tootsmont. I know that my great friend Tom Burke has always wanted to do a book about Jack Pfeffer. And there's the issue of who's going to buy this book, who's going to read it, right? I just, there's a new book out uh, about uh, Jack Curley, which I think yeah. is John awesome. Langley. Yeah, the, the book Ballyhoo. I'm going to be having him on the show. And I am amazed that anybody would give that a chance, but I'm so glad that somebody did. Yeah, Londis will be out one way or another by hook or by crook. Good. Because I haven't spent the last 10 years of my life uh, for nothing. The way I like to describe it is, Brian, from about the day that Hulk pinned Iron Sheik to today, we know everything. We know too much. But when you're still going back to the 20s, 30s, 40s, even before that, the wrestling history is very sketchy. After all, wrestling is practice, well, it practice disinformation, if not direct misinformation. And without primary sources to go back in that era, it's awfully hard to construct the history of it. Yet everything that has happened today happened once upon a time in the 20s, in the 30s, in the 40s, way back when. So to understand kind of what we're doing today, it really helps to understand how things happened at the, the very dawn of wrestling in North America. And that's um, that takes enormous time. Uh, it is not a money-winning proposition. I don't know how much money I've spent, but it's my wife's been very tolerant about mm -hmm. research on some of these wrestling projects. But in the end, if we can fill in that blank into an important slice of American pop culture, I, I think we're doing people a service. Absolutely. And I, I felt that way doing the sheet book. I felt that way. I feel that way now mm -hmm. doing my book on Gorilla Monsoon. And we don't do these books to get rich. And I think sometimes even people in wrestling don't understand that because I, I've, I've butted into that where, well, I understand for some people, everything is a hustle, you know, because it's wrestling. So everything, so sometimes they can't comprehend, well, why else would you be doing this? <laughs> because a lot of the autobiographies, as I've said here before, sometimes they can be, you know, more work than anything else. And it's sort of like, it's looked at as a payday more than anything else. And so there's sometimes a lack of understanding as to what a more objective kind of nonfiction book or biography specifically should be. You know, we're not, uh, I'm not, believe me, I'm not doing this uh, to get rich. I could probably, you know, what I get paid in advance for a book like this, I could make in about a month of working a normal job without having to drive myself insane with research and work all hours of the night. So it, it ain't for the money. No, it's not. The, the nine to five subsidizes the five to nine. <laughs> Greg and I have been working together at Slam now for, as you said, two decades. We're approaching 20 years since we started researching the first book, the tag team book. And through that time, we've had a lot of guys that we've reached out to and they said, I'd be glad to talk to you a thousand dollars. Um, $1,500. 
And I always try and be polite and thank them for their time, but say, look, I'm not going to make a thousand dollars. I'm going to lose a thousand dollars on this book, but um, I'm a poor journalist who just paid off his academic debts. I, I, I'd love to have your story, but we just can't do it that way. Um, and so using my reporting background, as you use your journalism background, you try and figure out what they would say and go to other sources and get it. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's part of it too. Like I said, that, that, feeling like everything's got to be a payday. And unfortunately, it causes some of the history to be lost because there's people that have great stories and insights. And, um, you know, I won't name names or anything, but I mean, all so basically they view those things strictly as a commodity, strictly as something to be bought and sold and traded on. And I guess more power to them. But like you said, we can't write these books and articles like that or we'd quickly go out of business. I mean, I had one person basically ask for uh, what was probably about six times what I was getting paid to write the book yes. just to be interviewed by me. I think maybe there's a lack of understanding too, in fairness, as to the way the business model, <laughs> I think they think like it's like a movie that's going to make millions of dollars or something. And, and it's just not. And, you know, if you, if you pay one person, you got to pay everybody. And then, and then of course you're compromising the legitimacy of the responses. I mean, it's, it's just journalism one one. You don't want to do that. No, it's unfortunate, um, but we've worked our way around it as best we can. I, you know, outside of Meltzer, I think Greg and I have probably interviewed more people than somebody asked us how many interviews we did for the storytellers book. I don't know, maybe 250, wow. 300 interviews. How many interviews made it into the book? Yeah, 50, maybe 60. We have this great store of information. I'm not totally sure what to do with it yet. Um, so you cover your bases as best you can. One thing that's really helped is the Pfeffer collection, the Jack Pfeffer collection at Notre Dame. I've been out there a couple of times because that's primary sources. That's own handwriting, own letters, own correspondence, which is much more valuable than reading a newspaper clipping or reading a press release from a promoter. That's helped flesh out a lot of areas I wish there were more things like that out there. I don't know if there are. They may be in somebody's basement, somebody's attic, long ago forgotten. But we're always kind of on the search for primary documentation. Yeah, absolutely. And I know even WWE over the years has acquired tons of things, which, you know, I don't know how much use it is at that point to historians, because I know that um, even talking to the archivist there, uh, Ben Brown and and other people that I know, even from when I worked there, um, they've really made a concerted effort to create a historical archive, um, at least. I mean, they have things that you wouldn't even believe that they would have, like, um, you know, early legal documentation going back to the Capitol wrestling days and, you know, documents with Tootsmont's signature on it. I mean, things like that they do have. And I don't know if they've always had it or if they've acquired it over the years but of course like with everything else they have then it becomes kind of locked down so so like you said something like the Pfeffer archive is priceless i've used it i've never actually physically been there i have to do that someday one thing that we did for the storytellers book here's one of the reasons why you lose money is i can't tell you how many freedom of information act requests 
I filed over the years for documentation from various places. When Johnny Powers sued Crockett Promotions during their promotional war between the IWA and the NWA in the 74-75 time period, I got all those documents from the federal court, used some of them in the storytellers, a lot more that I will probably try to use other places as well. But there's a slight cost in Xeroxing, oh, 1,500 pages of documents. You know, So we're glad to provide you this documentation under the FOIA request, the cost will be $600. Well, okay, honey, we are going to have pizza for dinner the next couple of nights. Yeah, that's commitment. I mean, that is commitment. And that is also why some stuff is never unearthed because not everybody is willing to go that far. And so there's things that just exist somewhere and they're locked away. I mean, I've anytime I come across a primary document for the things that I have worked on, um, it's like a precious jewel. I mean, to be able to, it helps you cut through some of the, you know, let's face it, a lot of these guys, are, they've been exaggerating so many years now that I don't even think they know what the true stories are. And it's always interesting when you, you start to get in there and you get inside their head of what, how they manipulated the truth and why. Like, uh, for example, with the Monsoon book I'm doing now, apparently he used to tell people this story of when he was, he went on a tour after the NCAA tournament with amateur wrestlers, with the U.S. Olympic hopefuls, basically. They went to Europe, they went to the Middle East and in the summer of 59, and they basically got shellacked. I mean, they were not prepared for the competition in like Turkey and Russia. I mean, these people did not play around. I mean, wrestling was their life and they got annihilated and he would kind of sugarcoat it when he would tell people about how it went. And he told this story about breaking a guy's arm and how the Russian was seven feet tall and he 500 pounds and he, and he knocked him down and broke his arm and they, and they gave him the win by default. And I was able to see, first of all, he was pinned in both of his matches in Russia quite easily, unfortunately. And he was a formidable wrestler, but he was pinned by these by these very skilled Russians. But the story he's telling actually did happen, but it happened in a college meet. So he was taking that incident, which I uncovered, where he accidentally broke the guy's arm and they gave him the match on default, and he transposed it to Russia, you know, but I don't think anybody walking the earth breathing air right now is aware of that except me and now you. Well, I appreciate that. And we've run into a lot of the same things. There's an old wrestling story that went around that I was proud to see we corrected in the heels book. And that was the Johnny Valentine shoots a hole in somebody's suitcase story, which I'm sure you've heard too. Uh, you get Johnny's in a locker room feud with somebody, usually Jay York, the Alaskan, and uh, pulls out a gun, blows a hole in the guy's suitcase. And it sounds cool. It sounds like the kind of thing Johnny Valentine would do. So I described Valentine to, I think it was Johnny Powers. And Johnny Powers goes, no, no, that didn't happen with Jay York and, and Valentine in St. Louis. That happened with Valentine and Jay York here in Toronto. And I said, hmm, I must have misheard the story wrong. And then I was talking to Pepper Martin. Pepper Martin goes, 
no, no, that that happened in San Francisco. And suddenly the light comes on. Oh, this was not some kind of terrible thing that Johnny Valentine and Jay York did that left a terrible impression on everybody in the locker room. This is a prank they pulled all around the country oh, on their own volition just to see who, how many times they could get away with it. I think I counted up six times that's that great. they pulled the same rib in, in the locker room. But that's, to get to your point, that's why it's important to check, double check, go over stories, try and see where they make sense, where they don't make sense. Because what originally came across as Johnny Valentine's uh, out-of-control action in the locker room was actually just a rib. And if nothing else, we got the historical record corrected on that. That's great. Um, wasn't there also, I'm wondering if this is the same kind of a thing, wasn't there also a story, and it, it's it's also Johnny Valentine and Jay York, about him um, taking his Jay York's inhaler yeah. and putting putting like propellant in there or like sterno or something and almost yeah that was that was allegedly what happened he probably actually trying to be like water (laughs) and they were they were in on the prank all together just like it was america's funniest home videos um jay york is selling that he's inhaling uh castor oil or some kind of fumes and he and valentine go at it in the, the locker room it's great they 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 ran it to death now you probably couldn't get away with that in this day and age. No. Because somebody would whip out their cell phone and put it on Twitter before the day was ended. But it, like I said, it speaks to the larger issue of checking something to see if it really passes the smell test to be too obvious in this situation. And if it doesn't, you know, poke around, ask other people, see what you can find out and try to set the historical record somewhat correctly just the fact that they would be working their own locker room angles is hilarious to me that they would work you know work the boys i guess just for their own amusement um i guess you just get bored on the road what else could you say it's an andy kaufman kind of thing it's an inside joke where the best kind of inside joke is when you're the only person on the inside of it Oh, you know, and I also want to mention, I left this out just because uh, I have so many notes here when I was introducing you, but you also wrote on your own without Greg, you wrote the book, which is really kind of the definitive, at least in my opinion, book on the Benoit tragedy, which is Benoit wrestling with the horror that destroyed a family and crippled a sport. That book also needs to be mentioned as well, because I think that was a really important book and a much needed book. Yeah, and that was a hard book to write in the light of that. Um, and to get back to the financial thing, that is not something we turned around quickly with any expectation of financial gain. That was something we turned around quickly to try and clear the record as best we could. Because yeah. you remember just, you know, everything was so wild at that time. Right. If it happened today, it would be even wilder. But it's important to understand how that situation was handled and uh you know, at the time, I wondered if that was really going to be not the end of wrestling, but really a down period for wrestling. But one of the things you find doing the kind of history work we have, Brian, this is an awful resilient sport. The number of times it has been counted down and out uh, probably exceeds the number of times our old friend Terry Funk retired. Mm-hmm. It's a, a, a constant thing, but it never seems to quite go away. Even when it's at its nadir, 
and which is probably one example of the 1925, 26, 27 period. Along comes Landis, and all of a sudden, wrestling is not only popular again, it's commanding page width columns or page width headlines in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the St. Louis Post Dispatch. And it's the hottest thing going, probably fourth in line, maybe in American sports to baseball, prize fighting, and horse racing. Then it hits a gutter again. Then it retreats, comes back with TV in the late 40s and early 50s. It kind of goes through this cycle, but you can never quite kill it off much as some people would like to. Hmm. Now I think it's on a plane where it's so ubiquitous. I mean, look, we, we can't turn around anymore without seeing the rock selling something that it's probably beyond the point of being able to disappear off our radar for a period of time. And I know for a while it was one thing too, especially with at the, the period when the Benoit stuff was happening for a while. Another thing that seemed like it might kill wrestling is that there was really only one major company. Yeah. Um, it had funneled down finally by 2001 to really just one company and everyone else fighting for a very distant second. I mean, things like Ring of Honor and TNA, I mean, they had their moments and things, but they never really were challenging the top spot. And I feel like when that happens, when so much of the business is consolidated, then that's the biggest threat of all. Because, for example, hypothetically, let's say with the Benoit thing, that that sunk WWE as a company. Well, with WWE out of the picture... I mean, for all intents and purposes, wrestling goes completely underground at that point. It, it just becomes a bizarre kind of, um, you know, footnote or a subculture. Or I don't know what you want to call it. And, and uh, it might yeah, like, be right. what you want to call it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Oh, man. So many people have said that to me. Do you think wrestling's going to wind up like roller derby? And I think that the thing that will prevent that is having more legitimate kind of competition. And I don't mean in the ring, but I mean like in business. And and I, that's why I think, you know, having AEW in theory, for example, is a good thing, even though I, I may not always love every decision they make. And I, I don't think they've lived up to what people's hopes were of what they were going to be. It's still okay. good that it exists. And we need more of that. We need more companies challenging because we're so used to one major company. I mean, even in the 80s when Vince McMahon did what he did, I almost feel like, yes, like everyone says, somebody was going to do that. If he didn't do that, somebody was going to do it. But I think the business would have been healthier if there were three or four companies that did it, you know, that were able to succeed. So you had a bunch of national wrestling companies and none of them would have been as big as wwe got but they all would have been competing and vying and and i think that would have made for a healthier industry whereas sometimes i really do worry that uh, the industry really just rests on the the uh whims of and favors of one company and, and, and it becomes a cookie cutter approach for developmental talent if everybody's coming out of the same place and going to the same federation uh, it, it's interesting. I think that 82 to 84 period you mentioned was really important. And I'll circle back to Jim Barnett, who we talked about a little bit earlier, because Jim Barnett, uh, who was so instrumental in developing 
wrestling in just about every part of the country. So instrumental in developing the first wrestling magazine with wrestling as we like it was the guy that Vince McMahon relied on to go into local markets and say, we want to buy this time slot. We're going to buy this time slot. And that facilitated Vince's takeover. Uh, Bobby Simmons, the referee in Georgia, tells a great story about how Barnett, every year at Christmas time, would visit all the stations, go to all the station managers, and hand them something incredibly expensive just so he stayed on the radar. And so the wrestling stayed on the radar. Okay. That's the way business was done in the old days. And that's the way it was done when WWF, WWWF went national in that time period. And when that happened, yeah, the ball game changed in a, in a major way. And the consolidation that you talked about started when Hogan pinned Iron Sheik. NWA hung on, subsequently WCW, WCW hung on, but we were headed down that path. And once you're headed down that path, it, it just wasn't going to break up again. Yeah, I always call that the BCAD moment of wrestling history. You know, Hulk Hogan pinning the Iron Sheik. It's like you can divide wrestling history into everything before that and everything after that. I mean, that's an oversimplification, but that's it's that moment, you know. It, it, it's, it's not an oversimplification. That is the national era. That's when the national era started. And a lot of the regional promotions that still existed at that time were run or owned by old-time wrestlers who were hesitant to change their ways to begin with and went out of business when Vince came in and took over the territory. I wonder if part of that, too, is by the time that was happening, let's say, but late 70s, early 80s, there were, like you said, so many promoters who were really just retired wrestlers they were they in some cases hadn't really been businessmen or they hadn't been lifelong promoters they were wrestlers who eventually took over the territory and i feel like that is a development that got more and more pronounced over the course of the territory era like i have a letter in my chic book it's from sam muchnick to johnny doyle where he's complaining about the chic being a promoter he's embarrassed that there are too many wrestlers now becoming promoters and I wonder, you know, it wasn't always like that. Most of the promoters were these kind of lifelong showman promoters, people like Ray Fabiani and the Jack Curleys of the world and the Paul Bowsers and Al Haft. I wonder if they, if it had stayed that way, if they would have been more prepared to handle somebody like a Vince McMahon trying to go national. You, you know what I mean? Because that was their, because promoting was their life basically from, from the beginning. Yeah, I, I would have two thoughts in that. First of all, in reference to the wrestlers who bought the territories, not only did they buy the territories, but Frankie Kane makes the point, they all stayed on too long and kept themselves at the top. Eddie Graham, Bruiser, you know, the list just goes on and on. And it's really a great job they did of killing their own territories. Um, the question about whether the old style curly haft Bowser promoters could have fended off what eventually happened. I don't know. The feuds between promoters that I've described in the Landis book made me think that just about everything was a marriage of convenience. Right. Um, and that promoters 
promoters' allegiances to where were to where their next buck was coming, even in 1926 or 36 and 46, and that they would willingly ditch somebody as soon as they saw the next best thing. The next best thing may or may not have worked out, but I'm not sure that they would have worked together in the way that we think they should have worked together. You know, even the NWA, which was supposed to be the alliance of promoters, was tugging at each other all the time with people dropping in and dropping out. Much Nick held it together, but you know, here's Eddie Quinn saying, I'm taking Carpentier and making him world champion. And now we have two world champions in 54, 55, and Luthez and Leo Namalini. I'm just not sure that you could always get, you could get enough people to agree to look beyond their narrow one, two, or three state territory for the greater good of wrestling. Maybe you could if they were threatened from the outside, if they sensed an existential threat. Um, but, you know, the history is, is what it is. Vince saw an opportunity. Uh, he took advantage of it. I just wish to God the correspondence between Vince or Jim Barnett and the station managers in San Francisco or Seattle or Minneapolis was something we both had our hands on because I bet it was fantastic. <laughs> That's very true. And, you know, it also shows you how tenuous, like you said, all those connections really were. It It's sort of like the old honor among thieves thing. It reminds me a little about uh, it's it's another allegory to me of pro wrestling being like the mob in a way where you see these stories. It's like, you know, you watch something like Goodfellas where, yeah, everybody gets along and they're all friends and they all cooperate until it's not in their financial interest to do so. And then they all start turning on each other because they really never really cared about each other to begin with. There was no real fraternity there. And and I'm sure, you know, some of them were genuinely friends, but, but it really was at the end of the day uh, about business. And Sam Muchnick, to his credit, was able to somehow balance it the best and for the longest and getting all these guys to get along and put aside their selfishness as much as possible. And you feel like he held on to that thing. It was like the bane of his existence. It's almost like he didn't want to be the NWA president for all those years. He wished that he could hand it off to somebody else, but he knew and he cared enough. He knew that once he did that, it was all going to be over. And he was right. That's exactly what happened. Because even as early as 75, when he finally does step away, that's when the real cracks in the foundation start to form as early as that. Yeah, there's no question about that. I go back to, I, I talked a little bit about this in the Londis book, um, you know, which I don't want to overhype because we'll get to that to another time. But I go back to that 1935-36 period when Londis, after several years as champ, setting box office records everywhere, becoming really the first crossover sports star from wrestling, probably at that point, legitimately the most famous or well-known active athlete in the world, he decides he's had enough. It's understandable. He was working 120, 130 nights a week before planes. A year, okay? a year. Yeah, yeah. a year. Uh, he, be, before planes, you know, he's, he's exhausted going from place to place. And he hands the title over to Dan O'Mahony. And then Dick Shuckett takes it from O'Mahony in a famous shoot in Madison Square Garden in 1936. And then everything splinters. Uh, he sells up the title to the highest bidder. And before the end of the year, I think you had 
I don't have the manuscript here. I think you had within nine months, you had nine different world champions. If I'm not exact on those numbers, the, the point is made. And wrestling is splintered and balkanized like ever, like never before. Even though it had been just enormously successful only a few months prior. That's why I'm not sure the promoters in that era could see beyond their nose or see beyond tonight's gate, tomorrow night's gate, and come to some mutual agreement on what should be done. And really the situation didn't rectify itself uh, until Londis comes back from Greece after a world tour and becomes champion for the second time, not universally recognized, but enough that newspapers described him as the champion because he was the champ. And the matter settled down a little bit more until uh, World War One hit, wrestlers went abroad and the whole- World War II. Apart again. World War II. Yeah. I'm sorry. My yeah. war is confused. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Now, yeah, World War One that would probably be more like Joe Stecker and Earl Caddick, but World War II, um, yeah, it, and I think the Ring magazine recognized him as the world champion, which went a long way at that time too. And and he had the nicest belt. I've seen his belt. He had he had the nicest belts. Uh, if that's not a qualification for being world champion, I don't know what is. And I there was also, no spinner belt either. <laughs> I also think and. Correct me if I'm wrong, because you you've done the work and the research, but I feel like another role that Londos played. We all know how he had that ethnic appeal, and he was kind of the first of his kind in that way. I mean, my grandfather even has told me stories. He grew up as a kid in the Depression, and J Jim Londos, and he wasn't even a huge wrestling fan at all. But Jim Londos was like everyone knew who Jim Londos was. He was like a god, and the Greeks loved him, the Italians loved him. You know, the the he had an ethnic appeal. Um, but I also feel like another role he served was, as you say, wrestling got really hit over the head and hurt badly over accusations of illegitimacy and fixed matches and fallout of Frank Gotch and Hackenschmidt and all that kind of stuff. And it was getting to the point where a lot of the legitimate sports fans, let's say, were abandoning wrestling. They were seeing it as a joke. And so they had to reinvent the business somehow. And Londus was kind of that reinvention where it was no longer about the, no one cared anymore. Is this a legitimate contest? It's just, we're going here to see our hero. We're going here to support uh, this exciting, you know, because he had that way of working in the ring and he would do the baby face comeback and that kind of thing. And it became less about um, is this real or not? And more about, are we being entertained or not? And he said that himself later in life, when his, his guard was down a little bit, that um, of course it's a show. Every you know, Isn't life a show? Everything is a show. We're trying to put on the best show for people. You'll notice, uh, make one point and digress to something else. When Londis made his comebacks, and this is something that is not done anymore, he made his comebacks with holds, counter holds. Okay? There was no fireworks shooting out of the butt the punches and the kicks, running some guy up on top of the turnbuckle and doing the one, two, three, four, five, six, eight, nine, ten. Made his holds, made his comeback with holds and counter holds. Why is this important? He's an undersized guy. You know, he's he's Dean Malenko size. Okay. How can he beat his opponent? He really physically can't beat up his opponent, but he can outthink his opponent. And so he's telling the audience, I may not be bigger and stronger than this guy, but I can come back by the intelligent application of the skills that I've developed, 
What a great message that is during the depression when the guys sitting at ringside probably had to scrape together the 25 cents to get the ticket. Here's a guy who looks just like me and he's using his intellect to defeat the other guy when it looks like all hope is lost. That's a wonderful lesson that, uh, that he teaches. To extend that, Landis was right, the great first ethnic wrestler in that chain that ended up being the New York ethnic wrestler from Rocco and Pedro and Bruno all the way down. And I remember Davey Yohannan telling me a story, I think we put it in one of the books, when he was still a fan before he became a wrestler about going into Madison Square Garden. And the lobby is just full of people milling around. The excitement is in the air. But they knew uh, the first match, Jose Luis Rivera or you know, Silvano Souza, whoever, this is fine. And, and the midgets, you know, that's going to be a little bit of entertainment. But Bruno, that's real. Yes. That's real. And, and we're going to be on our edge of the seat for that because we believe in it. Whether they believed in it in an intellectual level or whether they believed in it in an emotional level, just like Londa's, is immaterial. They believed in it. They had faith in it. They came to see it. And, you know, whatever the ending was, they walked away intent on coming back a second or a third time. Yeah, you know, there really was that distinction between the world title and everything else. Like now, okay, now this is for the world championship. They're not going to mess around with this. This is serious. This is the championship of the world. And I think they even, in a different way, they would do that with the NWA world title because, um, and this is why Fez and those kind of guys, they fought so hard for the legitimacy of it and to make it look as respectable as possible because there was that unspoken thing of, yeah, everything else on the card, we don't know. And it's kind of, there's some funny business. There's a guy dressed like an Indian. There's a clown, whatever. There's a ballet dancer. But now I am, I'm not playing a character, you know? And that was like a big NWA thing. You didn't really see heels and faces. They would wrestle all comers. It wasn't really about that. It was like, I am the world heavyweight champion. I'm above all of this. And I'm and I'm defending my title. There was that unspoken understanding. Like, I think this this part might be real. And I think it helped in the way they carried themselves from Londis or Fez or Bruno to the other NWA champions pre-1980 or so, that they carried themselves like champions inside and outside the ring. Um, there wasn't scandal attached to their name. When you saw them walking down the hallway toward you, you didn't run up for the autograph. You kind of backed off a little bit. You know, this is, this is somebody special. He's giving off that atmosphere that he's somebody special. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's one of those things. It's 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 changed so much over the years. But but yeah, Lundis is kind of the the beginning of so many things that we would later see in wrestling. And and there's not, I guess there's not a ton of footage that's out there, but there are matches that you can see. It's unfortunate that there's not more, but even something as I, I think I guess one of the most well preserved is very late in his career. It's the match. I, I think it was his last or one of them, the match with Primar Carnera from 1950, which is, I guess that's one of the reasons why it's still around is because it's much from much later, but even that you could still see, I mean, yes, he's an, you can tell he's an older man, but that fire is there. You get a feel for it. Like I've watched that match several times. And even just the idea, like you were saying, fighting over holds, like there's a couple of spots it's a two out of three falls match where, you know, they're fighting over a Boston crab, which you wouldn't think would be the most exciting thing in the world. 
but it is, you know, because that's one of Londis's finishers and he's, he pulls it out of nowhere on Carnera, who's about twice his size and he uses it as a reversal. Carnera has him in some kind of a hold. And the next thing you know, Carnera is in a Boston crab, which you never saw coming, but it's that, it's that psychology of being able to, to kind of like tap into what people want to see and what is going to get the biggest response from the crowd. And I think that's also something that changed in wrestling where they, ne they didn't necessarily care about the reaction of the crowd before that, you know? Yeah, I think that's true. There's a, a little bit of tape of Londis when he fights Nagurski in 1938 yeah. to win the world championship for the second time. And toward the end of the match, he gives Nagurski, he gets Nagurski in the ropes and gives him an arm breaker. And even, what are we now, you know, 90 years later, you look at that and you say, whoa, that was a serious move he delivered there. Um, and you realize, to get back to the believability factor, he cranked a big football player's arm over his shoulder. Nagurski sold it very well. He might well have heard him for all I know. It looked like it. Um, to me, admittedly an older guy, that's much more believable than a guy doing a somersault reverse hurricane rana off the top rope where the camera clearly shows that he's landing on his, his feet in his rump and not touching the guy that he's supposedly murdering. Uh, I can get into that a lot more. I understand expectations have changed, and that's not necessarily the way things go anymore. But I do think, and I, we've talked to some people in our books about this, that that old school style in the Landis, Lewis, Stecker era is kind of reflected in today's UFC. Oh, yes. And, and so it's almost like it's come full circle over the course of 100 years, which makes us wonder what UFC will be like in another 20 or 40 years. That's so true, because in a lot of ways, UFC became what wrestling used to be. And in some ways, in certain aspects, what boxing used to be before they had a lot of more regulations and things. And it, and it is like when, when you jump forward enough in time. So that living memory no longer exists. It's like all of a sudden you think you've invented this new thing. And it's like, well, wait a minute. We just got back to the way that it used to be, you know, 120 years ago. But no, nobody realizes that, you know, especially with the, the, the wrestling part of it. Because, I mean, that's a lot of it is is catch wrestling. It's the type of stuff that they would do. And even when they were faking it, they were simulating it. They were trying to make you think that it was a competitive shoot fighting match. They weren't really what you'd call performing. They were just like, if you watch some really, really old stuff like Stecker and Earl Caddick, you can see that you can, you can really, unless you are an absolute expert, you can look at that and go, this looks like a genuine struggle. I don't see any kind of working here. I mean, these guys are really struggling and maybe there was a little more to it, but the outcome you know, was predetermined and they were going to make sure that they didn't hurt each other if they could help it. But, you know, that has gone out the window more and more and more. I mean, even beginning as early as the thirties till today, it's this gradual process of pulling back the curtain, pulling back the curtain more and more and more until now we're really at the point where it's like, you're just judging the match. Like it's a, like it's Olympic diving or something. You're putting up a, you know, one out of 10 on your card, and you're evaluating the performance like it's figure skating. Yeah. 
And it's no longer about even suspending your disbelief for a moment. I mean, even that is, seems to be a, a relic of the past. Yeah, that's exactly right. If you look at Dave Meltzer's Twitter feed, it's nothing but a series of disagreements between people who believe that this match should have been scored four and three quarter stars as opposed <laughs> to four and a half stars. Oh, you know, Lordy. We've lost the plot a little bit. with Yeah, the, we, when... you know, we've lost the plot. But more than that, if that's what we're focusing on, we've lost the tide of the past that we're trying to preserve and trying to convey why this is an important slice of Americana that needs to be preserved. I, I saw a match between Johnny Valentine and the Mighty Igor when I was a kid that, you know, it would have gotten negative stars because neither of them moved for 10 minutes. But you know what, Brian? It was Johnny Valentine and the Mighty Igor. And they were there live in front of me in the Akron Armory, which was not a good place for a 13-year-old kid to be. <laughs> um, that was pretty cool. And I worry that that appreciation for that kind of stuff kind of has been, uh, has fallen by the wayside for what you're talking about in terms of everybody's a critic, everybody's an expert at this point. Um, I, I understand that's the way things have, have gone. Um, one of the chapters in the storyteller's book Greg and I did is called The Fans Take Over for exactly that reason. Um, yeah. But when we do that, we lose sight of the story that's being told. And also the, the when you when the fans start to dictate the stories that should or shouldn't be told or who, you know, that's when I think something's lost as well because the promoters and bookers, they they even they lose their power, their ability to shape the audience's reactions, to create moments and stories. You know, I always say this about how, and I don't think this is as much of an issue as it was, say, even 10 years ago, but how the the audience will reject somebody strictly because they know that the promoter and booker wants them to accept that person. Yes. It's almost like this weird, spiteful game. And in the past, you know, in, in the more kayfabe days, what they could have done to, sur you know, to surmount that is they could have done it through booking. You know, you take this wrestler and you put him through the, you put him through the ringer and you make him overcome all these obstacles and people start pulling for him and, and, and the opinion starts to turn. But when people know and are fully cognizant, not even subconsciously, but fully, that everything they're watching is is they're just completely being worked and it's being created by a room of TV writers. Well, then the more you do that, the more they actually start to resent it because they feel like I don't no matter how hard you try, no matter how many storylines you write for this guy, we don't like him. And it doesn't matter who he wrestles or what he does. We decide who we like and who we don't like. And there's no angle that's going to make us change our mind. And that is so sad to me. So that is, something is profound. It's like draining the life out of what makes wrestling so great. You, you, with that, you lose the emotional investment that you have in wrestling, just like you would lose the emotional investment you would have in a pro sports team, a baseball team, or a football team. And when you're drained of that, and it just becomes something that appears on your, you know, your iPhone or your your laptop and you're just critiquing it instead of appreciating the art that's going in there that's um that's tough the the last chapter of our storyteller's book i think was titled i should know because i wrote it but i think it was titled wither storytelling is storytelling 
gone. It was old-fashioned storytelling gone. Um, I think we used the example of Roman Reigns during that period when we didn't know what the hell Roman Reigns was. Was he a good guy, a bad guy, a hero, an anti-hero, um, a guy overcoming all odds, just the regular Joe from Georgia Tech, some kind of monstrous superhero. Um, to the fans, it's difficult when the guy doesn't have an identity and then they pick up on that and make sure the guy doesn't have an identity. And as you said, just, you know, boo him out of the arena. Um, I wouldn't want to be booking right now. No. Like most people my age, I did fantasy booking on my couch when I was 14 about how I would book the next year at Buffalo Memorial Auditorium. You can't do that anymore. I don't think you could book the next week. Um, well, it would be the same the same amount of, of of different occurrences would take place within a week as used to take place uh, in a year. But it's like they want to book the show themselves and um, they're not affected by the booking uh, in a lot of ways. I went to uh, AEW's pay-per-view World's End and I don't talk too much about contemporary wrestling on here, but this is a good example to me. They had a match uh, between two very, very talented guys, Swerve Strickland, who's one of like their their breakout main event stars, and one of the people I think has benefited the most from going there, and Dustin Rhodes, who is like your classic, especially in Dustin Rhodes mode, is your classic wrestling babyface, and they're they're working this match where clearly, clearly Swerve is working as the heel. I mean, an absolutely despicable heel. And Dustin is working this this babyface kind of underdog come up from beneath style, clearly designed to get the audience behind him and win over the crowd. Except from beginning to end, he's being mercilessly booed, loudly cursed, and loudly. And Swerve is being cheered no matter what he does, like re- like absolutely cheered and chants going up. And I'm thinking like this is so surreal to me because. I don't know if that's the reaction they're going for. I don't even know if anyone cares if they're getting the reaction they're supposed to be getting, if the wrestlers care, if the booker cares, as long as they're getting some reaction. And I even engagement, right? Engagement. And I turned to somebody that was, I was with there and I, I, they weren't uh, a friend of mine. They were just someone that was sitting next to me. And I said something to the effect of, you know, um, this like Dustin is working as a face and swerve is working as a heel. This is so weird to me that, they're cheering him doing all these terrible things. And the guy said to me something like, well, you know, with AEW fans, they just like who they like. It doesn't matter what they do or or how they're booked. They're just going to cheer for who they like no matter what. And and uh, and that's it. They just like who they like and, and you can't change it. You can't make them like somebody they didn't like or make them dislike somebody or turn. It's just because they're so clued in that they just uh they just have their favorites and they see it as a tv show and nothing more one of the things i'm doing right now one of my current projects is something that is on the laptop and it's just called the history of riots i don't know anyone has actually done the history of wrestling riots and so i've taken a stab at going back into the 10s and 20s into about the 80s when that sort of behavior stopped and tracing not just you know what was the best riot, what was the most dangerous riot, but why people rioted. And this ties in with what you're talking about with fans, and this is fascinating. There was a, and by riots, I should say, I'm only including things that involve police, not just unruly fans. I've got to have law enforcement in there. 
That's my defining characteristic ah. of a riot. Okay. Fans rioted not because in the 20s or 30s, not because somebody was a good guy or the bad guy or whacking somebody over with a head with a chair. But there was a riot in Los Angeles when Joseph Oldie and Jim Browning, I think it was, went to a draw in what was advertised as a finish match. Okay. We can't conceive of that today, right. but the fans didn't feel they got their money's worth. Curfew had come down. It was declared a draw. It was supposed to be. This is one of these finish matches. And the fans responded appropriately. Can you imagine that kind of emotional no. involvement that you're really not cheering for one guy or the other? You're cheering for the match. You're cheering for one guy or the other to beat him, whoever it might be. But you're cheering for the outcome. You're cheering for the story to come to an absolute conclusion. And if you don't, you, you go wild and start ripping up the chairs and throwing them in the ring. Um, that's That was really a fascinating example compared to the kind of riot the Sheik or Abdullah the Butcher might create for continually beating the snot out of somebody. Fans had different motivations for what they did. And they were dissatisfied at the lack of a conclusion. I can't imagine that same reaction today because I can't imagine that level of emotional involvement in the contest itself. If there's some way that some genius promoter genius writer, genius booker could bottle that in some way, shape or form, you might have something. Well, I always point to, and this pertains to the the later kind of riot where it would just be the, usually them trying to kill the heel or whatever. I always point to that when people will say to me, oh, well, everybody, everybody in the crowd knew that it was a work even back then. And, and I say, you know what? That is not true, okay? That is demonstrably not true. Maybe the public at large, I'll give you that. I think the public at large knew what wrestling was. But among the people that were actually there, a significant amount of those people believed 100% in the legitimacy of what they were watching for the simple fact that you are not going to jump in the ring and try to kill somebody if you think that what you're watching is a show, a fake show. You're not going to try to shoot someone or stab someone or throw acid in their face or set their car on fire. They were doing that because they believed in what they were seeing. And um, i that's one thing I'm glad that we don't have today. You don't want to go back to that. But it speaks volumes about the, the, the difference uh, in the emotional engagement from then to now where, you know, you're just there for a night of fun and entertainment and I don't want to be the Grinch and rain on everybody's parade. You're having fun. You're having a good time. Fine. But it's a very different kind of experience from what it used to be. Even when I was going in the eighties and early nineties, I felt like there was more of that kind of like energy of, of, of uh, getting caught up in the moment. There, there was, and you, you're right. The correct answer to whether people believed or people didn't believe is the answer is, yeah, some people believed, some people didn't believe. Some people took it seriously, some people didn't take it seriously. You know, it's not that complicated. But I'm old enough to have been to Maple Leaf Gardens when the Sheik was walking down the ramp, okay? And there was, I was old enough to know, you know, I, I can probably take this old guy myself, maybe, but there was still this sense that he was about a millimeter away from jumping off that ramp and stabbing to death just about everybody in Maple Leaf Gardens in one fell swoop. 
And I can't, I've never, I've never been able to recreate that at a wrestling match. Um, you just can't imagine what that sense was. Even, you know, there's 18,000 people there. Some people believe, some people didn't believe, but the aura, the energy, the level of anticipation and anxiety was so high that uh, I'm still living off it 50 years later. The idea that somebody could just, like him, could just turn their head and glare and maybe lift a hand and people would just scatter. People who were standing feet away from him, like not even within his reach, would just disperse and scatter. I mean, there's a power to that, that even the best performers today and more, most credit in the world to them, they don't have because there's no, there's no format for it. Even if you're the very, very best at what you do, people are never going to take it that seriously to the point where they really, truly believe you. In fact, the most funny thing to me that happens today is anytime you have a heel who actually genuinely does, for whatever reason, piss people off and make people genuinely angry, he gets in trouble for doing it and he That's has right. to apologize or something. And I'm thinking, well, isn't that his job? Isn't that what he's supposed to do? I mean, come on. Uh, I'll give you an example in some of the research I did of my favorite ending ever to a match. Real simple, but it got the crowd so worked up that they, they chased the, uh, the heels out of the building. This is Dunkirk, New York, uh, a little furniture town about 45 miles south of Buffalo. Spot show in the late 50s. And the Gallagher brothers, one of the truly great unrecognized tag teams of all time. We had them in the top 20 and I would, nothing would ever convince me they weren't a top 20 tag team are against uh, Elio DePaulo and I, I think Billy Red Lions. Yeah. And they've been having a feud back and forth week after week uh, with the standard interference, uh, double teaming. Anyway, the blow-off match was Mike Gallagher against Elio DePaulo, once and for all with Doc Gallagher, Mike's brother, barred from ringside. Okay, That's common stipulation. So Mike Gallagher and Elio DePaulo are going at it in this match few hundred fans in an agricultural arena in Dunkirk, New York. Up on the second level, there's a little crow's nest with a spotlight that was used for performers coming in and out. Doc Gallagher goes up and starts to man the spotlight. Mike Gallagher looks up and Doc will go with the spotlight, dot, 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 dash, dash, dash. And Mike will start nodding like this. You can't see me, but I'm nodding my head up and down and turn around and deliver an arm bar or a punch or a toehold. Okay. This goes on for three or four times. Spotlight comes on, dot, 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 dash, 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 blink, blink, blink. Mike Gallagher nodding, turns around to Elio DePaulo, puts him in a headlock, puts him in a hammerlock, whatever it was that he interpreted the sign to be. DePaulo's had about enough of this. So he turns to the referee, points to the spotlight where Doc Gallagher's operating out of the crow's nest, Mike comes from behind and Elio schoolboys him one, two, three, just like that. Okay. You have any idea what the fans did? <laughs> the Gallagher brothers may still be running after they're chased out of the ring, but what a simple ending okay, that didn't involve anything other than hammer locks, toe locks, and uh, an incandescent light bulb. 
to get the fans engaged and riled up and probably keep that feud going indefinitely. I can't believe what he did last week in Dunkirk, New York. This Saturday in Buffalo, I guarantee you, there will be no spotlights pointed down on the ring. Um, that kind of booking doesn't and probably can't exist anymore, but I sometimes think what we see just overcomplicates matters when a simple solution might do the job just as well. Yeah, because you have to work so much harder when when everybody's in on it. You you have to work so hard, whereas you could put a guy in a headlock, for example, because if you're doing it right and the people care, well, they're wait they're they're trying to see if the guy could get out of the headlock. And I mean that that's and it also allows you to catch your breath too at the same time. And there's nothing wrong with that. It was it was all about working. I don't think the sheik. I said it in the book, and people thought I was trying to dismiss him. I'm not. I don't think the Sheik could have worked today. I think he would have been Danhausen or something like that, where everybody would have just laughed or thought it was hilarious. And you couldn't, you just couldn't have a character like that. And like I say in the book, I feel like it's to the detriment of wrestling that you can't. It's like we've we've really lost something. We're too smart for our own good. We are, but I still I still hold out hope. I'm an optimist. Um, I guess anybody with a PhD is an optimist that they actually finished the darn program. Um <laughs> This was, oh, maybe six, seven years ago. Tully Blanchard and Tom Pritchard were doing a seminar for young wrestlers in uh, North Carolina. And Tully put Tom in a headlock. Must have been for five minutes. Tom struggled. Left, right, push, agony. Had people just absolutely mesmerized. It didn't take, you know, the first minute or so is kind of, okay, he's going to shoot him into the ropes. They're going to body block, crisscross, um, leapfrog, drop toehold. No, they just kept with it. Kept with, boy, after two or three minutes, people were, you know, even wrestlers were, you know, I think he's, he's not going to let go of that son of a gun, is he? No. So I think there's still some hope if it's done right, if it, it doesn't have to be all the time, but maybe as a change of pace, to the triple hurricane runners off the top rope, you can see something and just see if the fans react. Uh, keep trying it and pushing it. Maybe they don't react at first. Maybe they react two, three, four weeks on down the road. And that gives you as a promoter or you as a wrestler, another tool in your tool chest. Yes, it, it happens when you don't treat it like it's just a break or a rest where you understand it's part of the match. You know, I, I, I loved when MJF had his thing with, uh, with Darby Allen, where he vowed that he was going to defeat him with a side headlock and he did. And then he did, and they had the match and he did, and he pinned him with a side headlock. You know, I mean, that's somebody who, who I think does have at times when he's allowed to an understanding of the psychology of what makes wrestling work, especially for a young wrestler, uh, that's one of the reasons why I like him. Um, I think sure. that he gets it. He gets it to a certain degree. So, so uh, I'm 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 glad to hear your optimism because I feel like I was becoming the doom and gloom person. Okay. Wrestling is doomed and all this. I I don't feel that way. I love wrestling. I still follow it. I still enjoy it. You know, I just I just happen to enjoy the older stuff more. That's okay. But um, yeah, there's, well, there's reason to be optimistic, and it's just to circle back to Londis one more time. Here's a guy who came from Greece at the age of 15 on a boat 
three weeks across the Atlantic, not with uh, a word of English in his tool chest, 20 bucks to his name, slept in freight cars in California, took year after year of being pounded into submission by the great wrestlers, told he was too small, too slight, and certainly too foreign to ever be a champion and became the biggest drawing card of his era and maybe the most important wrestler of all time. If that isn't a good story and a good reason why you should still be optimistic about wrestling, I don't know what is. Well, I know I'll be looking for it and I, I other people like me will be looking for it. You've got a reader here for sure. I've got, <laughs> I would pre-order it if I could, but he's somebody that I would love, you know, I've always wanted to see uh, given that kind of treatment. So I, I really, really do look forward to that. Oh, well, thank you. And and I want to thank you too for agreeing to come on the show. I know I, I've been doing more. I've been thinking about doing group episodes more. So maybe one day we'll have you and Greg together. That might be interesting. We could do that. That's, that's, I think that is the only wrestling writing tag team out there. <laughs> uh, we, we always laugh that I take the, I take the abuse or he takes the abuse and then gives me the hot tag. I get the easy job. <laughs> I couldn't believe, and I know I'm I'm trying to wrap up, but I have to say that I was just talking to my wife about this earlier because she was asking me who I was going to be interviewing today. And my wife came to CAC with me in 2021 and 22. We didn't go right. in 23 because they had it in the first week of school, which is an impossibility. We have a small kid, and I'm glad they've moved it again because we're hoping to be back this year. But we were in awe of you and Greg during the banquet at, and this was this would have been 22 you guys just i mean you know yeah i was getting work done too and but i was kind of trying to also have a good time and i had my wife there and you know we were you guys were <laughs> on i mean like absolutely on top of everything had your laptops out at the banquet table at the CAC just filing stories writing up stories and it's just it's a very impressive operation i have to say Oh, thanks. It was our pleasure. As soon as CM Punk put down the microphone this year, 2023. Now we knew we get a lot of hits on a CM Punk story, but I, I, Greg and I just cranked that out as fast as we possibly could. Um, and that's important. It's, it's important to do it. It may be only a small a number of people actually read it or engage with it, but uh, we love doing that. And I love doing this with you. All right. Thanks so much, Steve. I appreciate it. Okay. We'll see you soon, Brian. There you have it, folks. My conversation with Steve Johnson. Steve, thank you so much for being a guest this week on Shut Up and Wrestle. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you will continue listening to the show. Next week on the show for episode 109, it will be a return to Titan Tower, another of my former colleagues, and you are going to love this one. I'm going to have with me a former member of the WWE Publications Department, who some of you may even recall from the TV of the Attitude Era. We'll go into that next week. Her name is Melissa Costabile. You may not know the name, but you're going to find her story fascinating. She will be my guest next week on episode 109. Also, future guests coming up on Shut Up and Wrestle, I will have with me here Colin Hunter, the man behind Kayfabe News, as well as Pacific Northwest Portland wrestling historian Mike Rogers, and... Dominic D'Angelo, pro wrestling journalist and writer, will be joining me here among many others in the weeks to come that I am working on. Keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle. I promise not to let you down. 
You can find it in many places. Our website is suawpod.com. In addition to that, find it wherever you find your podcasts. Podcast Addict, Podbean, Google Podcasts for the time being while it's around, Apple Podcasts, and of course Spotify or anywhere else. And while you're at it, join the Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. Been posting some great historical stuff there lately. Don't miss out. Join the club. Join the cool kids table. Also, if you want to contribute to the show, it is a free show, of course, as all the Arcadian Vanguard shows are. But if you'd like to make a modest financial contribution, who am I to stop you, ladies and gentlemen? If you want to do that, there's a few ways. You can go to my Twitter page, Brian R. Solomon, and there'll be a button there that you can use, a button at the top, little a little dollar sign. And you can contribute via Venmo or Cash App. And if you'd like to contribute via PayPal, you can find me at Solomon at yahoo.com. Some of the other projects I work on, the Wrestling News from Arcadian Vanguard. Find it every morning at thewrestlingnews.com, as well as on the YouTube page for Arcadian Vanguard. The books that I have written, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, as well as Superheroes, the history of a pop culture phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro. Get them wherever books are sold, or if you want to buy an autographed copy from me, as so many have, and thank you for that, you can reach out to me at brianrsolomon at yahoo.com, and we'll see what we can do to make that happen for you. The magazines that I write for, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Pro Wrestling Illustrated can be gotten at pwi-online.com. Inside the Ropes Magazine can be found where else but insidetheropesmagazine.com. If you're looking for me on social media, you'll find me on Twitter or Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. And on Facebook, my page there, my writer page, is Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you'll find the link to my website out on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that love means never having to say you're sorry. So long, wrestling fans.